All right, guys, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to come before you again and study the life of William Tyndale, Father. Pray, God, that you would encourage us through his life and his work. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the title of this paper is Always Singing One Note, The Consuming Passion for God's Word in the Life of William Tyndale. So why study William Tyndale? In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and we must learn from them. Also in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So this has been handed down to us, obviously, in Scripture, and then also in the lives of the men, women, and children who lived, fought, and died for God in church history. The Reformation, obviously today is Reformation Sunday, was, in essence, the liberation of the Bible from the papacy. It had been locked away in Latin translation from an illiterate and uneducated laity, the common people. And from that, the Reformation liberated it to the common man and woman and the common languages from the original Greek and Hebrew and not the Latin of the Roman Catholic Church. It's important to remember that our Bible, our English Bible, and in fact all of the modern language Bibles that were translated at that time, come down to us flowing on a sea of blood. William Tyndale was the man whom God raised up and used, and the man who purchased by his blood the Bible's liberation from Greek and Hebrew into English. More than a century before William Tyndale, John Wycliffe had attempted to relieve this darkness by translating the Bible into English from uh, the Latin Vulgate and distributing copy, copies, handwritten copies by the Lollards, the preachers that he sent out. Only a few hand-copied Wycliffe Bibles were available at the time of William Tyndale, and it could be fatal to possess one. In 1401, the English Parliament passed the De Heretico Comburendo, the Burning of Heretics law, which made it a crime, a crime to own or produce an English translation of the Bible and stipulated that those who did so would be burned alive at the stake. In 1408, Thomas Arundel, the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote the Constitutions of Oxford, forbidding any translation of the Bible into English unless authorized by the bishops of the Church of England. He wrote in this document, It is a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another, for in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, translate any text of the scripture into English or any other tongue. No man can read any such book in part 
or in whole. Which is very ironic, since the Bible he's talking about that is okay to read is a translation of the Greek and Hebrew into Latin. In preparing this paper, this lecture that I'm delivering to you, I owe much to the following works, which I made ready use of, that some of them you can easily find. I drew heavily from the introductory essay by Reverend Harry Walter on the life of William Tyndale. It's in volume one of the collected works of William Tyndale, which is a two-volume set put out by Banner of Truth, as well as R. DeMoss and Richard Lovett's biography, Stephen J. Lawson, you can find this online in both audio and written format, Stephen J. Lawson's essay on Tyndale, which is titled The Prince of Translators, and I also made ready use of lectures in audio form by Dr. Tom Nettles, Dr. Michael Haken, and Dr. John Piper. Let's look at the early life of William Tyndale. Little is known about Tyndale's early life, including the exact year of his birth, and this is not uncommon of those days. People sometimes did not know how old they were or when they were born. We do not know when he was born, but we do know that he was one of five sons of Thomas and Alicia Tyndale. William was the second of these five sons, but we are unsure as to the exact place or year of his birth. The probability is that William Tyndale was born at Gloucestershire in rural western England, close to the Welsh border in the year either 1493 or 1494. Either of those dates is accepted uh, pretty widely by scholars. The majority of what we know about Tyndale's entire life, from his infancy to his death at 46 years old in 1536, comes from the great Reformation historian John Fox. Uh, You might be familiar with his book. You've even probably seen it at Barnes & Noble, etc. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. The original title was something like The Acts and uh, Deeds of the Martyrs. The Tyndale family were successful. They were important members of society, and they were pretty well off. They had the means of sending William to study in 1506, at Magdalen School, Oxford, when he was only 12 years old. Um, That was not necessarily uncommon back then for the educated to go early to college and school. Tyndale would spend the next 10 years of his life studying at Oxford. After two years at Magdalen Preparatory School, he went on to study at Magdalen College in Oxford, where he excelled in his studies of grammar, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music, rhetoric, logic, and philosophy. More importantly, he made large progress in the study of languages, especially Latin and Greek. And he did this under some of England's finest classical scholars. He earned a bachelor's degree in 1512 and a master's degree in 1515 from Oxford. Before leaving Oxford... Tyndale was ordained into the priesthood, though he never actually entered into his uh, monastic orders, his vows. A brief note needs to be inserted at this point regarding God's providence in raising up William Tyndale. At this point in his life, after receiving his master's, Tyndale was not only well-versed in the philosophy of the day, but was also an accomplished linguist. He knew his mother tongue, English, 
to a degree which few will probably ever surpass. He was able to coin new words, and he understood the rhythm, rhyme, and cadence of English to such a degree that he was to raise it from being known as a vulgar, barbaric, and vile tongue into a language known for its poetic beauty. Lead us not into temptation. He wept bitterly. There were shepherds abiding in the field. Those are all exact Tyndaleisms. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all Tyndale. Any of you who know anything about languages know you could translate any of those things from Greek or Hebrew in a number of different ways. Those come down to us directly from Tyndale. It is said that roughly 90% of the King James New Testament is verbatim Tyndale. That's how good it was. Beyond English, Tyndale just basically understood how language works in general. He was fluent not only in Latin and ancient Greek, but also the modern languages of Spanish, Italian, French, German, and Dutch, to such a degree that it was said of him that whichever he might be speaking or writing, you would think it to be his native tongue. If God were to raise up a man to translate the Greek of the New Testament into English, this is what that man would look like. It was only in the late stage of his time at Oxford that Tyndale was allowed to study theology. However, it was useless speculative theology. He later expressed his disappointment in being shielded from the Bible, even in his studies of theology. Quote, Tyndale writes, In the universities, they have ordained that no man shall look on the scripture until he be nozzled or nursed. And he then learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of the scriptures. The scripture is locked up with false expositions and with false principles of natural theology. He did not have a high regard for the theological education he received at Oxford, apparently. Nonetheless, even in spite of this, at some point during his later years at Oxford, Tyndale began to come to some realization of the truths of the gospel, to an evangelical faith. John Fox writes that while Tyndale was at Oxford, quote, he read privily or privately to certain students and fellows of Magdalen College some parcel of divinity, instructing them in the knowledge and truth of the scriptures. So even at this early age, uh, and at this, this early time before the, he really became what he is known to be, he was even then instructing others, his fellow students, in divinity and theology and scriptures. After earning his Master's of Arts, He went to Cambridge, most likely to profit from the Dutch humanists uh, and Roman Catholic priest Desiderius Erasmus' lectures in Greek. Erasmus is a name that we all must be very familiar with. It was Erasmus who gave to the world the first ever printed and published Greek New Testament in 1516. Without this Greek New Testament, though this was certainly not Erasmus' intention, it may be safe to say that there would have been no Reformation. The importance of Tyndale's removal to study at Cambridge cannot be overemphasized. The the German reformer Martin Luther had begun writing some of his earliest Reformation writings by around 1517 through 1519, and by 1520, these writings of Martin Luther had begun to circulate amongst pretty much all the universities throughout Europe and England. It It is these works of Luther that are being read and discussed in Cambridge 
And it's through that that Tyndale came to embrace the core truths of the Reformation. In 1521, Tyndale decided he needed to step away from the academic atmosphere at Cambridge to give more careful thought to the ideas of the Protestant movement that he was learning about. He also wanted to use the time to further study and master the Greek New Testament. Next section is titled, The Birth of a Reformer. To fulfill this desire to step away from academia and study and think, Tyndale took a job in Gloucestershire as a tutor for the children of the wealthy Sir John Walsh and was likely also the chaplain to that family. Tyndale also spent time doing regular itinerant preaching in the area, especially preaching regularly in the little church of St. Adeline. During this time, he realized that England could never be truly evangelized or won for Christ using the Latin Bible. He came to see that, quote, it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. As he traveled about the region, it became known that his beliefs were becoming distinctly Luther-like. Around 1522, he was called before John Bell, who was the chancellor of the Diocese of Worcester, and warned about his controversial views. No formal charges were made at that point, but this incident was a foretaste of what was to come in William Tyndale's life. Sir John Walsh, being an influential and wealthy man, often had important aristocrats, businessmen, deans of universities, and church leaders, doctors, etc., over for supper. Oftentimes, while dining at the same table as Tyndale, who was their tutor and chaplain, the conversations began to center around the learned men of the day, Erasmus and Luther, and other controversies and questions regarding the scriptures and their interpretation. Tyndale, being trained not only in their schools, but most importantly in the school of God's word, when asked about his opinions, always showed them his understanding of the topics from God's word as simply and plainly as he could. John Knox tells us that while these men would come to disagree, that when these men would come to disagree with Tyndale, which was often the case, he would, quote, show unto them in the book, the Bible, and lay plainly before them the open and manifest places of the scriptures to confute their errors and confirm his own sayings. At length, these men waxed weary of Tyndale and bear a secret grudge in their hearts against him. Not long after these men began to grow tired of Tyndale and his incessant Lutherism, certain high-ranking men in the church invited Master Walsh and his wife to a banquet where they would be able to speak with Sir Walsh and his wife freely without their views being constantly refuted by Tyndale. When Sir Walsh and his wife returned, they called for Tyndale and began to speak with him about the priests, about what the priests had told them at the banquet and to reason with Tyndale whether these things were so. So they finally got to have a hearing with the Walshes and started to convince them of their views without the pesky Tyndale. Tyndale answered the Walshes, by the scriptures and not by church tradition or conjecture. And thus, he was able to maintain the truth and reprove their false teachings. Mrs. Walsh, being only somewhat convinced of Tyndale's arguments, asked him, in as many words, I'm slightly paraphrasing, if you're so smart, then why are you not paid what these good men are? And why are you not paid what the priests are? Why are you not in the academic circles that they are? Why then should we believe you before them? Tyndale, being wise, gave her no answer, and he ceased to talk any more 
about these subjects of the Reformation, seeing that it was to no avail. It happened that at this time, Tyndale was finishing his translation of Erasmus's book, Enchiridion Militis Christiani, a handbook of the Christian soldier, from Latin into English. And upon finishing it, he presented a handwritten copy to Sir Walsh and his wife. The master and his wife carefully read the book, and afterwards, the priests and the professors were no longer invited to dinner. Soon after this, Tyndale made acquaintance with one of the leading university professors and hires up in the church who was sympathetic to Tyndale's views. This man had come to be convinced of many of Luther's teachings and had concluded the Pope was indeed the Antichrist. He warned Tyndale, Beware what you say, for if you shall be, perce- for if you shall be perceived to be of the opinion that the Pope is the Antichrist, it will cost you your life. Somewhat prophetic. Some time later, Tyndale found himself to be in the company of some learned men and doctors of the church. A bitter debate broke out concerning the teachings of the scriptures. He sat at his table with these great thinkers who had grown annoyed of him. One of the most respected men of the group began to shout, We were better to be without God's laws than the popes. Tyndale had tried to remain soft-spoken up to this point, but could no longer tolerate the level of blasphemy which was being spoken. He stood from his seat at the table and proclaimed what came to be some of his most famous words. I'll let John Fox tell the words of the story. Quote, Master Tyndale, hearing this, full of godly zeal, and not bearing that blasphemous saying, replied and said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I shall cause, I shall cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than the Pope dost. Tyndale realized shortly after this confrontation that it would no longer be safe for he or the Walsh family for him to remain in Gloucestershire. In 1523, he left for London, where he hoped to find some educated and sympathetic men who would be patrons for him in his work of translating the Greek New Testament into the English language. Basically, they'd pay for his needs. He hoped they would find people who would be sympathetic towards the idea of the common man and woman and child being able to read the gospel for themselves. He hoped to find this in the man of Bishop Tonstall. He was sadly mistaken. As he found that Tonstall, who had worked alongside Erasmus in producing his Greek New Testament, was committed to stopping the spread of Luther's teachings, which they had seen explode in popularity after Luther's German translation of the Bible. Tunstall's refusal to meet with Tyndale only deepened Tyndale's convictions. He knew England desperately needed a Bible that the common man could read. However, he was not certain how to do it or where. While in London, he preached numerous times, mostly at St. Dunstan's Church in West London. And you see God's providence here. A wealthy cloth merchant, Humphrey Mammoth, heard him preach and became his patron. This financial backing allowed Tyndale to remain in London for one year, just long enough to develop a plan. If he was to accomplish this translation project, he realized that, quote, there was no place to do it in all of England. Opposed by the English church, Tyndale acknowledged that he must leave his beloved home country to complete this labor of love for the English people. In April 1524, Tyndale sailed to the continent to launch his translation and publishing work. 
He was doing so without the king's consent, without the bishop's consent, which was a crime against the law of England. Tyndale lived in exile from England for the final 12 years of his life, a fugitive and an outlaw who would never again see his home. Next section, in exile. Tyndale set sail and he arrived in Hamburg, Germany. Though there is debate amongst Tyndale scholars, it seems probable and most likely that Tyndale traveled to Wittenberg to study under Luther and the rest of the leading German divines of the Reformation. Neither Tyndale nor Luther ever mentioned this. But when we look at Tyndale's side, his writings are fragmentary and he remained busy during his time. And he was unable to really write much of anything by way of autobiography. And for Luther, Tyndale was just one of thousands of students who were flocking to study with him in Wittenberg. And thus, he would have taken no real notice of Tyndale. It would make perfect sense, though, for Tyndale to seek refuge in Wittenberg, where he had master theologians such as Luther and Philip Melanchthon to learn from and ask questions about any peculiarities of the Greek New Testament that he found, and this all in safety from the Roman Catholic Church. It is here that Tyndale began the work of translating the New Testament from Greek into English. Wittenberg had just recently, under the leadership of Luther, cast off the remaining authority of the Pope, thus allowing for much greater freedom in civil matters than before. This is very important because the Jews had been expelled from England since 12. 79. But in this region, in Saxony, they were numerous enough that there were some well-versed in their ancient tongue of Hebrew. So not only did Tyndale now have access to learn the language of the Old Testament Hebrew from Luther and the university professors in Wittenberg, but he also had access to many rabbis and educated Jews who could instruct him in their language. Biographer Henry Walter tells us, Within three years of leaving England, Tyndale had made such progress in this ancient tongue of Hebrew as to be able to give considerable insight into some of the peculiarities thereof. In August 1525, Tyndale traveled to Cologne, where he completed his first translation of the New Testament. At that time, Cologne was the most populous town in Germany. In this bustling city, Tyndale found a printer, Peter Quintel, to publish his translation. He wanted the secrecy of the printing to be guarded at all costs. But the news of the project leaked when one of the print workers who was printing the New Testament drank too much wine and spoke openly about the endeavor. A bitter opponent opponent of the Reformation, John Cochleus, overheard and immediately arranged for a raid on the press. However, Tyndale was forewarned. He gathered the printed leaves after only ten pages had been run and escaped into the night. Leaving the Catholic entrenched Cologne, he fled up the Rhine to the more Protestant-friendly city of Worms. If you remember, Worms is where Luther did his famous Here I Stand, I Can Do No Other, and defended the Reformation. Shortly thereafter, Roman Catholicism fell in Worms, and it became a Lutheran city. You'll see in books, it says the Diet of Worms, which English usually butchers to say the Diet of Worms, which uh, conjures up some interesting imagery. Next section, publication and distribution of the English New Testament. Worms was the city in which Luther had tried, 
had been tried for heresy in 1521. It's here that he uttered his famous words, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. By 1526, when Tyndale was living in Worms, the Reformation had completely taken it over. In Worms, Tyndale found a printer, Peter Schoffer, who agreed to complete the printing of his English New Testament. This was the first portion of the scriptures to be translated into English from the Greek and to be mechanically printed. Roughly 6,000 copies of this first edition were printed. Over the next eight years, two revised editions followed. Stephen Lawson tells us that, quote, by spring 1526, Tyndale began to smuggle his English New Testaments into England in what? Bales of cotton. Do you remember where he met somebody who worked in cotton? At that church, his patron. In Antwerp, English merchants shipped them to England, where German Lutheran cloth merchants received them. Once past the royal agents, these forbidden New Testaments were picked up by the Christian Brethren, which was a secret Protestant society, and taken around England to various cities, universities, and monasteries. There they were sold to eager merchants, students, tailors, weavers, bricklayers, and peasants alike, all hungry to read God's word. Each one of these Bibles cost three shillings, two pence, a week's wages for a skilled laborer. But demand quickly outstripped the supply. By the summer of that year, the existence of Tyndale's New Testament was known to the church officials in England, who reiterated the fact that it was forbidden and illegal to buy, sell, own, read, handle, or even hear this book. Tyndale's New Testament burned. In 1527, William Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, designed an ingenious plan to stop the spread of Tyndale's translation. He thought it would be best to purchase all the remaining copies of Tyndale's New Testament and destroy them. However, in God's providence, the money from the sales enabled Tyndale to produce a better revised second edition of the New Testament. (laughs) Warham unintentionally financed this. Moses learns English. In 1529, Tyndale moved from Marburg to Antwerp. This thriving city offered him good printing, sympathetic fellow Englishmen, and a direct supply route to England. Here he completed his translation of the five books of Moses, but he felt the danger was too great to stay in this large city. He realized that the Pentateuch must be printed elsewhere. Tyndale boarded a ship to sail to the mouth of the Elbe River in Germany and from there to Hamburg. Sadly, a severe storm struck the ship, and it was wrecked off the coast of Holland. His books, his writings, his dictionaries, his grammars, and the Pentateuch translation that he had just made were all lost at sea, and he had to start the work from scratch. Tyndale eventually arrived in Hamburg. He was received into the home of the von Emersons, a family with strong sympathies for the Reformation. In this safe environment, Tyndale undertook effort of retranslating the Pentateuch from the Hebrew language. This task took him from March to December 1529. Offers are made to Tyndale. In November 1530, Thomas Cromwell, a counselor to Henry, King Henry of England, tried another strategy to stop Tyndale. They realized purchasing his New Testaments uh, did not work. He commissioned Stephen Vaughan, an English merchant who was sympathetic to the Reformation, to find Tyndale. On behalf of the king, Vaughn was instructed to offer Tyndale a salary and a safe passage back to England. 
Basically, if we can't beat him, let's purchase him. When he arrived on the continent, Vaughn sent three letters to Tyndale, each addressed to a different city, Frankfurt, Hamburg, and Marburg. Tyndale replied, and a series of secret meetings took place in Antwerp in April 1531. Tyndale told Vaughn that the only way that he would return to England was if the king would have a quote-unquote bare text of the Bible translated into English for the English people by whomever he wished. He knew a lot of the problem was the Lutheran sympathy, so he said, don't put any notes in it, just translate the Bible in English, let them have it. He said, if the king does that, I will return. Tyndale said that if the king would do this, he would return to England, never translate anything again, and he would even offer his life unto death to the king, if need be. On June 19th, Vaughn wrote back to Cromwell from Antwerp these simple words. It was addressed and signed, and in the middle it said this, I find Tyndale to always be singing the same note. In other words, Tyndale would not change his tune. He would not stop writing books or return to England until the king had commissioned a Bible in the English language. Until the king would provide the English people a Bible in their language, Tyndale would be their provider. So Vaughn returned to England without Tyndale. Next section, betrayal and imprisonment. In early 1534, Tyndale came to live in the home of a wealthy English merchant in in Antwerp, Thomas Points, who, according to biographer David Danielle, was a, quote, good, shrewd friend and loyal sympathizer. Points took Tyndale into his protection and even provided him with a stipend. He paid him. In relative safety, Tyndale set about the work of completing the revision of his New Testament translation, which Danielle calls the glory of his life's work. This second edition contained some 4,000 changes and corrections from the 1526 edition. Further, Tyndale placed a short prologue before each book except Acts and Revelation, and he added cross-references and marginal notes. Tyndale's Hebrew was now as good as his Greek, and this allowed him to work masterfully on the next part of his Old Testament translation. So he completed the Pentateuch, now he completed Joshua through Second Chronicles. Back in England, though, a certain young man, Harry Phillips, had been given a large sum of money by his father to pay a man in London. But Phillips, like the prodigal son, foolishly gambled the money away rather than fulfilling his father's errand. An unknown high official, they think it might be Thomas More, in the Church of England, was made aware of Philip's predicament, and he saw an opportunity. He offered to repay his father's money if he would travel to the continent, find Tyndale, and bring him back. In his desperation, the foolish young Phillips accepted the offer. He arrived in Antwerp in early summer 1535 and began to make the necessary contacts that he needed with the English merchants. When he found Tyndale, he established a false friendship with him and won his trust. One day, Phillips lured Tyndale into a narrow passage in Antwerp outside of his home, from which Tyndale could not escape. There was only room for one person to walk at a time, so he walked behind Tyndale, Tyndale being a short man and Phillips being a large man. He stuck his hand over Tyndale and pointed down and gave him Judas's kiss. 
At the end of the pathway were waiting soldiers to arrest him. After 12 years, illegally translating the Bible into English as a banished English citizen, Tyndale was captured. Tyndale was taken to the castle of Vildevorde, six miles north of Brussels. There he was imprisoned behind its imposing moat, seven towers, three drawbridges, and massive walls. Shivering in the dungeon of this castle prison, Tyndale languished for nearly a year and a half as preparations were made for his trial. But in God's providence, once again, Tyndale's time spent imprisoned was by no means fruitless. During this time, in addition to winning his guard and the guard's entire family to Christ, he also wrote another treatise secretly on the doctrine of justification to defend his doctrinal beliefs. In the harsh winter of 1535, Tyndale wrote a final letter to the Marquis of Bergen requesting a, quote, warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from the cold, a warmer coat, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out, my shirts also are worn out. Further, and this shows the dedication of Tyndale, Tyndale asks something that is truly indicative of his love for God's word, his love for God's people, and even his brash boldness for God's truth. He asked in this letter, quote, that a lamp in the evening be given to him. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. Also permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. While in prison, awaiting death, for translating the Bible out of Greek and Hebrew into English, he has the audacity to ask, For the necessary materials, continue translating the Old Testament out of Hebrew into English. In August 1536, Tyndale at last stood trial. Dr. Lawson tells us what this trial consisted of. Quote, a long list of charges was drawn up against him, and he was condemned as a heretic. His offenses included believing that justification is by faith alone, that human traditions cannot bind the conscience, that the human will is bound by sin, that there is no purgatory, and that neither Mary nor the saints pray for Christians, and that Christians should not pray to them. The same day of his trial, Tyndale was excommunicated from the priesthood and was handed over to the secular powers for punishment. The death sentence was pronounced upon him. Back in his dungeon, a steady stream of priests and monks came to his cell to harass him, mock him, and call him to repent of his quote-unquote heretical views. Next section. Open the King of England's eyes, Lord. Tyndale was executed on October 6, 1536. Dr. Lawson captures the pathos of the scene well. I will quote him in full. Quote, A large cr- crowd gathered at the southern gate of the town, held back by barricades. In the circular space, two beams were raised in the form of a cross. At the top was a strong iron chain. Brush, straw, and logs were piled at the base. At a set time, the procureur general, who was the emperor's attorney, sat down with the other officials. The crowd parted as the guards brought Tyndale out. Tyndale was allowed a moment to pray and then was urged one last time to recant. When he refused, the guards tied his feet to the bottom of the cross and fastened the chain around his neck. The brush, straw, and logs were packed around him, and bags of gunpowder were tied around his neck. 
because he had the honor of having that happen because he was a priest at one point. It was probably at this moment that Tyndale cried his famous last words, quote, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. When the procurator general gave the signal, the executioner quickly tightened the noose, strangling Tyndale to death. The procurator general then handed a lighted wax torch to the executioner, who lit the brush and straw. The gunpowder then exploded, blowing Tyndale's corpse to pieces. What remained of the limply hanging burnt body then fell into the glowing fire and turned to ash. Next section. Ere long, and the boy that drives the plow doth know the word. Tyndale's one consuming passion was that if God so spared his life, he would so translate and distribute God's word that the simple farm boy working in the fields would know the scriptures even better than the Pope. Tyndale was able to complete two editions of his translation of the entire Greek New Testament into English, the second, of being, the second edition being a true literary work of art. But he was only able to complete the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into English as far as Second Chronicles, as well as the prophet Jonas, before his life was snuffed out in the flame of martyrdom. But God had heard the prayers of Tyndale. While in Antwerp, Tyndale began a friendship with a fellow Englishman by the name of John Rogers, who had studied at Cambridge with him. Tyndale did not know this. But while he was waiting to be martyred in the Vildevord prison, Rogers, whom he had taught Greek and Hebrew to, picked up where Tyndale had left off in his translation of the Hebrew Bible. He finished translating, and his finished translation was printed in between Tyndale's Pentateuch, Jonah, and the New Testament. This came to be known as the quote-unquote Matthew's Bible. Shortly after Tyndale's death, his prayer for the King of England was answered. Seeing that it was becoming useless to fight against the circulation of Tyndale's Bibles, he permitted that the Bible should be fully translated and published. Before the end of the year, the first ever volume of Holy Scripture to come off an English printing press was brought forth. And from the King's own printing press at that This volume was the Tyndale New Testament. With his prologues, his notes, his cross-references, and headings, and the name of William Tyndale for the first time, ornately set forth on its title page. The eminent English printers, Grafton and Witchchurch, paid out of their own pocket the cost to complete the Bible, which Tyndale and Rogers had begun. The 4th of August that year, this Bible was printed and presented to the king, had subsequently sent to Henry's counselor, Cromwell, to obtain from Henry his, quote, royal license, that the same, the, New Test- or the Bible, should be sold and read of every person without danger of any act, proclamation, or ordinance heretofore granted to the country. Within this Bible, finally printed on the king's press, were the words, quote, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he willeth. The heart of this wayward king of England was now turned by the Lord to sanction what he had previously denounced. Conclusion. I close with a quote from Henry Walter's biography. Quote, Tyndale said to Vaughn, if the king 
would grant only a bare text of the scripture to be put forth among his people, be it the translation of what so what person soever he shall please, I will promise never to write more, nor abide even two days more in these parts. He was indeed to write no more, and he no longer abode on this earth, but more than he had asked had been given to him by the king of kings. The scripture was licensed to be put forth, and his own translation was accepted, and his instructive prefaces were not removed, but were more than tacitly acknowledged to contain a godly and wholesome doctrine necessary for those times, meaning they endorsed his doctrinal prefaces. We close with John Fox's words. Thus much of William Tyndale, who, for his notable pains and travail, may be worthily called the Apostle of England. End quote. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of William Tyndale. Thank you for our Bible in English. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Bless the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a couple minutes. If you have any quick questions that I will attempt to answer, let me hear them. It was a Latin Bible. It was Latin. Yeah, because okay. that was in the 1400s. Yeah. Okay. What, uh, early 1400s? Or like mid. Mid-Latin? Yeah. Latin, just Latin. Oh. It was, a Latin. it was before there was ever any translations besides Wycliffe's. Nick? Yes. The Coverdale was the one that the king... Uh, approved and was printed. Matthew's Bible was printed, but it was printed not on the shores of England. It was printed on the continent, yeah. Uh, what was the Bishop's Bible translated from? It was basically just a revision of that same Coverdale Bible. Right, and that's how it got into the KJV, like 90% mm-hmm. of Tyndale yeah. to KJV. Because if you read the translators to the readers of the 1611 King James, they say that they did not consider it foolish or, or basically superfluous to look at all the previous English editions and, and benefit from them. So, But ultimately, Tyndale did such a good job that uh, pretty much remained 90% of Tyndale's translation in the New Testament and in Genesis and Chronicles and all that. Um, one example of his literary uh, just genius with language, um, in Greek, I forget the exact, but it's when uh, Paul or Peter uh, betrays Jesus, he goes out, and it says that he wept bitterly. That's kept even in, prima, I think even the NASB, the NLT, I think most of them all say, and he wept bitterly. And that's just perfect. Um, there, <laughs> I think the message says, and he cried hard. So uh, you can't improve on he wept bitterly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the reason we read the newspaper that we do and Facebook messages that we do, uh, you're reading Tyndale's adaptation of English. He, he set in stone what English is, yeah. He also, uh, after his second edition, his second revision, because there's many editions of the printing, but his second edition of the revision, he then, uh, 
he, he made another version of it where he put the words into the spelling of how the people said the words. So he had, he had made a way for things to be spelled correctly, but then he, knowing that the people had a hard time signing those words out, put it in their horrific way of sounding it out um, so that the plowboy could, could memorize and sing scripture. Yes, and the German language, the, pretty much uh, the Stotter and Vitaling, pretty much everywhere the Bible is translated, it solidified that language. For English, yeah. Not only delivered unto the people of God the Bible, but changed fundamentally how we speak and read Mm -hmm. to do literature. Everything. The whole world. Yep. It it, it just goes to when someone tries to stop what God is doing, God explodes his word powerfully. Yep. It's amazing. And Erasmus should should not be discredited. Um, he was a reformer in his own right, but his was a uh, a reformation of philosophia Christi. Uh, you know, just the moral aspect, the the uh, uh, educational aspect of the of the church. He he was a great satirist. He he wrote amazing satires, um, and he definitely he he also there's some there's some quotes of Erasmus that you would think are Tyndale. He talks about the plowboy singing the scriptures in his own tongue and and everything. He was that's why he. Uh, Originally, his his Greek New Testament was just put in there next to his own Latin translation to show where the Vulgate was wrong, um, but it was just there to kind of give reference, and that ended up being what caused Reformation, not his Latin translation. So, um, but he he was he saw the the what was wrong with the Roman Catholic Church for sure. He um, <laughs> he said once uh, he was talking about pilgrimages and like visiting relics of of the church and everything, and 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 the the, the Bible times. Uh, that would get you grace. Basically, if you went and saw, you know, Jesus' diaper, you would like literally. I'm not kidding. If you went and saw Jesus' diaper, you would uh, you would get grace, um, uh, all that kind of stuff. He said that you could build a ship and sail across the ocean with all the pieces of the genuine cross of Christ. Uh, meaning that there were so many people saying, "Here's the here's an actual piece of the cross of Christ." He was saying you could you could take all this together and build a ship and sail across the ocean with it. Any last questions? We have seven minutes. Yeah. No, I mean, just as authoritative in any other, you know, the English is not authoritative in all matters of uh, faith and practice, according to our confession. I mean, the Greek and Hebrew is, but so far it is as is faithfully translated. Faithful. Okay, faithful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, a, the, there's problems with the Vulgate, yeah. Um, but uh, it was, Jerome didn't have necessarily any bias when he was translating it, just how the, the times were. Did the Catholic Church yeah, it, it adapted over time, and, and they used the specific Latin readings. That was their authority, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, that was their final authority. And st- it was up until uh, very recently. Even in the Council of Trent, it was still in the 1500s. Yeah, the Counter-Reformation was still. What is that? I mean, they still hold it to be authoritative, but they, they allow for translations. Yeah. For, for English, yeah. 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 But no. The Catholic Church certainly has some sinister things. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I think, uh, honestly, the, the Catholic Church is one of the most vile institutions. Of course. On the surface. Yeah. And yep. their fruits 
display some shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Emily, did you have any questions? Michaela, any questions? Brad, any questions? Okay. All right, guys. Awesome.